Oh, good evening. Well, after that very nice welcome you just gave me, I suppose I should give you some good news. The good news is that creativity is something we've all got. <clears throat> it's an aspect of ordinary human intelligence. It's not something that just some tiny elite living in garrets have got. That's the good news. The bad news is that it's a weasel word. I define it as the ability to come up with ideas or artifacts that are new, surprising, and valuable. Why is that then a, re a weasel word? The reason is that each of those terms has got more than one meaning. New has got two, uh, surprising has got three, and valuable has got perhaps an infinity of meanings. Let me explain that. An idea can be new in two senses, and I think it's very important to um, distinguish them, especially if we're thinking about having some sort of scientific theory of creativity. Um, and I call them P-new and H-new, or P-creativity and H-creativity. H creativity. P stands for psychological. H stands for historical. Now, if somebody has an idea which is new to them, which they have never had it before, that counts as P-creativity. And it doesn't matter how many people have had that idea before them. H-creativity is a situation in which somebody has an idea where, so far as we know, uh, it's the first time in human history that somebody has had that idea. Now, clearly, H-creativity is a special case of P-creativity. And what's more, to um, decide whether an, an idea that's uh, P-creative is also H-creative is not a scientific question. It's a historical question. Uh, and in any event, even if you find H-creativity the most interesting in terms of the most wonderful, and the sorts of examples that you tend to think of first tend to be H-creativity uh, examples, the ones that are literally in the history books, it's P-creativity, which is the basic phenomenon. It's a, a person coming up with a new idea or making a new artifact. I'm going to use idea very broadly here to cover those two. So from now on, although I may well mention examples that are H-creative, I'm talking about P-creativity, okay? That's what I'm talking about. Um, so new has those two meanings. Surprising has three meanings. I'll give them to you later. And Ambrose have talked about different types of creativity, and that's what those three sorts of surprise are about. And we'll come to that. Valuable, I say it has perhaps an infinite number of meanings. Um, I think it is part of the concept of creativity that is valuable. I think mere novelty is not enough. Um, it's got to be interesting in some way. It's got to be perhaps beautiful, perhaps um, rigorous, perhaps useful. I mean, in different domains, different criteria of value apply. Okay? It's perfectly clear. You do not judge um, a mathematical theorem or a chemical theory by the same standards that you judge a sculpture or a painting. So that's one thing. Um, what's even more weaselly, if you like, than that is that whatever domain you take, even mathematics, and certainly anything in the arts, but even in science too, um, you will have people uh, differing about value. Different cultures and different subcultures and different little tiny, you know, mini groups within a, with a, a culture, they will disagree. So you get fads and fashions um, in people regarding new ideas as valuable or not. And sometimes those fads and fashions last um, for decades or maybe a couple of hundred years. Uh, sometimes they last for, I don't know, a month. Um, so there are many, many, many different values that people use to decide whether or not they want to call an idea creative. And those values come out of the culture. They're sociocultural. Now, it's true that some of them in a few cases, you can give a scientific explanation of why we have that value. And perhaps the most obvious example of this is shininess. Apparently, in all cultures, um, shininess is, uh, there's a tendency for it to be regarded as, um, as attractive, <coughs> as beautiful. 
And so, you know, you have, think of in our culture, we have silver lurex and we have silver and we have um, chrome on cars and so on and so on. Now, of course, you may say, well, hang on, I wouldn't be dead in something made of lurex. Indeed, it's vulgar. Well, yes, but this is the point. We are, we have evolved to be attracted to shiny things. I think basically because it's a property of the reflectance of still water, which is a, a sign of being a habitat where it's safe to stop, right? That's why it's evolved. So that's why we all tend to like shininess. But in a particular culture, that preference can be overcome, can be argued against and overcome, even to the extent that within a certain uh, group, nobody would be seen dead wearing lurex, okay? So there is biology there at the base, but it can be uh, overcome by um, social cultural factors and most values anyway. Most uh, values don't have a biological base like that anyway. So it's sociocultural issues, and I am not going to talk about sociocultural issues because I'm talking about creativity and neuroscience, and neuroscience is not concerned with those issues, okay? So I'm not going to talk about values, um, I'm going to assume that the <clears throat> ideas which we're hoping that new science uh, might be able to explain, we've already decided that they're valuable. That's why we're interested in them. So the question we want to ask is, how is it possible, and in specifically, can neuroscience tell us how it's possible for people to come up with ideas that are uh, new and surprising in the ways they've talked about, and, and they happen to be valuable. So um, can neuroscience do that? And in the title of my talk, I talked about neuroscientific mystery. Um, now, it is a mystery today in the sense that um, there's almost no work, I would say, in neuroscience at the moment that casts any light in it. There are exceptions and I'll come to them. But it is... Um, it isn't just an unanswered question, it's the question where it isn't at all clear you know, what sort of answers you should be looking for, at least in two of the three types of creativity. So at the moment, neuroscience can tell us very, very, very little. But that's not because creativity is some sort of romantic, capital R, some sort of romantic, divine attribute, you know, which is forever beyond the filthy fingers of science. Uh, it's not that. It's not because it's not introspectable. It's not because, as is very often pointed out by people who want to be mysterious about creativity, they tell you, and they're quite right, that um, creative people very often, in fact, typically, can't tell you how they got their ideas. And sometimes they turn this into saying, um, from, I can't tell you how I got it, from saying, well, perhaps I didn't get it, and perhaps it was put in me by some... Uh, external force, some supernatural, even divine force. You still actually get people occasionally talking this way. But that is um, completely um, ignorant way of speaking, because if you think about it, uh, I look at these bottles, and you can see these bottles too, I suppose, if you can't see the bottles because of somebody's head in front of you, I don't know, look at the podium. You have all now just done something. You have recognised these bottles here with people's head in front of you. You've recognised the podium. And a lot of processing has been going on in your heads, in your visual cortex and elsewhere, for you to do that. We're totally unaware of it. Similarly, when you come up with a grammatical English sentence, I mean, virtually everything which we do uh, involves a huge amount of psychological processing of which we uh, are not aware, and indeed in most cases of which we cannot become aware even if we try. Um, and it's just as well, because uh, if all of our processing was available to us, we would suffer from such an information overload, we wouldn't be able to get anything done. We would be in much worse predicament than the, you know, the centipede who started thinking about which uh, leg to use first and consequently was paralysed with the sort of anxiety. Uh, so, the fact that it's not introspectable is of no interest. I mean, it's a, it's a nuisance, if you like, but it's of no scientific interest whatsoever, nor is the fact that it's unpredictable. Um, for one thing, occasionally, uh, and if we're talking about P-creativity here, occasionally you can predict it. What's Socratic dialogue all about? 
Socratic dialogue is a way of interacting with somebody where you can lead them to come to, to them, a blinding new insight. <sighs> but you had the, and not only have you had it before, you knew exactly that's where you were trying to get, get them to think. So, A, it isn't true that P creativity is unpredictable in every case. In fact, it can even be uh, manipulated in that sort of case. Um, but B, it isn't the function of science anyway to predict particular events. Very occasionally, science enables you to do that. And the best example of that, I suppose, is um, when the space capsule drops into the Pacific Ocean, coming back from going around the moon or wherever it's been. And there are already rescue ships waiting there for it. I mean, that degree of precision of prediction of an individual event, this particular space, space capsule coming back to Earth, is possible. But it's a very, very rare case. Uh, science isn't about that. Science is about regularities, generalities, not particularities. Um, and the fact that it can't uh, predict, or in most cases I would say even explain post hoc, individual events of creativity um, shouldn't make us think that there is something weird about creativity. And basically the reason for that, the reason that it can't do that, and we'll never be able to do that in my opinion, is that it's just too complicated. I mean, if you asked a physicist to predict the movements of that grain of sand on the beach, he'd think you were crazy. It's not that he doesn't know, you know what's relevant. He knows about winds and weight and pressure, all that stuff. But I mean, he just, not only would he not want to, he's not interested in that grain of sand, but it's just far too complicated. In practice, he couldn't do it. In principle, he could, but in practice, he couldn't. What's more, he wouldn't want to. Uh, creativity, of course, is rather different, a bit like suicide. We are interested in whether or not Joe Bloggs will commit suicide. We are interested in how Shakespeare came up with, you know, pick your, your, your favourite example of some wonderful Shakespeare imagery, whatever. We're interested in it. But um, we are in an even worse position than the physicist is with the grain of sand because there are so many more um, possible influences um, in the case of um, human creativity. All the contents of the human being's mind that we're thinking about, everything, all their world knowledge, all their culturally specific knowledge, all their emotional attachments, all their past reading, etc., etc. And if you want to get um, a sense of the sort of thing that's going on there, there is a wonderful book called The Road to Xanadu by um, a literary critic called John Livingston Lowe's. I think he published about 1920, something like that. And um, what he did was um, he went to the commonplace books um, that Coleridge had kept for 18 months during which he was writing um, The Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan. And um, Coleridge read very, very widely indeed. And he had a habit of writing down passages in these commonplace books of just things that interested him. And to cut a very long story short, what Livingston Lowe's did was, he had these commonplace books, which of course normally one doesn't have, right? He had these commonplace books. He read every single word of every single book or scientific paper, because he read the philosophical papers of the Transactions of the Royal Society, that was, that from which there was even one quote in the, in the commonplace book. And he read every single word of every single item that was cited in a footnote or referred to in that first level source. And on the basis of that, he managed to come up with, um, I would say, an extraordinarily plausible account of how it was that Coleridge was able to come up with um, specific images in those, in those poems. Um, so it wasn't predictable, but it was uh, post hoc explicable, but it was only, that's only because in this very, very rare case, he had all this information. Um, I mean, the notion that you could have predicted, or for that matter, that Proust himself could have predicted what was going to happen uh, when he uh, ate the Madeleine 
is, is ludicrous. It's just uh, too complicated and we don't have the information anyway. So if you are looking to neuroscience or any other uh, science or even uh, a humanity enterprise like literaturism to predict these individual events, um, you'll be unlucky. So we are not talking about predictability and it is no <coughs> failing of neuroscience that it couldn't ever do that. Okay, that's not what science is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be um, telling us how certain phenomena are possible and how certain phenomena relate to the others. So, um, and I must mention here one other reason that a lot of people have for saying that uh, not only that neuroscience uh, of creativity at the moment is a mystery, but that it will always remain so, that you'll never have a neuroscientific explanation. And that's um, a sort of Wittgensteinian phenomenological view, which is against any sort of naturalism in psychology, which holds that, uh, I mean, to put it in a very crude nutshell, because consciousness and intentionality are prior to science, the notion and notions of the external world and so forth, the notion that science could explain um, consciousness or intentionality or any sort of psychological um, phenomenon is on this view absurd. Now, um, that's a very, I would say that was the deepest division in Western philosophy between the people who believe that and the people who, on the other hand, are realists in the sense that they say there is an external world out there and there is stuff inside this thing here. And all of those things have certain properties and they have them in, you know, independent of us. And if we want to understand what's going on, um, and certainly if we want to call ourselves scientists, we have to look at the world in that sort of philosophical spirit. Now, I think that that is the right uh, side of this dichotomy, but I can't prove it to you, nobody can prove it to you, and nobody can prove the other side either. It is the deepest divide. 99.9% .9 of neuroscientists, I think it's fair to say, not only don't believe the anti-naturalist view, but um, th think it's absolutely ab absurd and, and, and so on. They can't even get them to understand what the point is. So there is a problem there, philosophically speaking, but you can't get them to see it. So I am now going to uh, assume that it is in principle possible that there could be a scientific explanation of creativity, to which perhaps neuroscience might contribute, uh, the question is, what might that be like? Okay. Well, so today we can't say very much. Tomorrow, what might we be able to say? Well, now we have to talk about these three senses of surprising, the three sorts of creativity. And I call the three sorts of creativity combinational, exploratory, and transformational. And most people who talk about creativity, including people who make it their life's work, experimental psychologists who focus on, on creativity as a career choice, um, most people only talk about the first. They ignore the second and third. And I think that's a big mistake. Now, the first sort is combinational creativity, which is unfamiliar combinations of familiar ideas. And I'm sure, since this is the last in a series of talks on creativity. If any of you have come to the previous talks, I'm sure you'll have heard people saying that many times. I mean, that is the usual definition that people give of creativity. And of course, it is one sort of creativity. And it covers much poetic imagery, not all of it, but much poetic imagery, it covers visual collage in painting or graphic art, um, colors, um, analogy, it covers the notion that the heart is a pump or that the, solis, the atom is like a solar system, etc. So there's a lot of very interesting stuff there. I'm not saying combinational creativity isn't wonderful, interesting, exciting and important. What I'm saying is it isn't the only sort and the other two usually get forgotten in this sort of discussion. And the second I said was exploratory. In exploratory creativity, what you do is you pick up a style of thinking which is already there in your culture. 
very occasionally you pick it up from somebody else's culture, but usually you're picking it up from your culture. It's already there. You aren't responsible for it. It's a way of thinking about something. It maybe a way of doing mathematics, a way of writing poetry, um, a way of composing music, whatever. And you, what I mean by saying you pick it up is you accept the rules of thinking, the constraints on thinking, which this style um, lays on you. So, for example, you know, if you want to write a sonnet, well, you'd better know about the 14 lines in the A's and the B's and so on. Otherwise, you aren't writing a sonnet. Okay. Um, and if you want to do Euclidean geometry, well, you'd better take regard of his six axioms. Um, and what you do is, in exploratory creativity, you accept those rules. Now, I don't, I don't mean you do this consciously, usually, you don't do it consciously. You don't, certainly don't do it fully consciously. Um, and in fact, um, musicologists and historians of art um, very often spend a whole lifetime trying to spell out just what the rules are that identify a particular style. Okay? Um, but anyway, at an, at an intuitive level, at a, um, I wish, by which I don't mean a, a level of magic, I mean a non-introspectable level, um, you, use, you follow these rules and you come up with new structures, a new Impressionist painting, another sonnet from Shakespeare, um, another um, picture on the pavement, which a pavement artist is uh, drawing. Well, he's never drawn that picture before. And I would say that, um, you know, 99% of the time of 99% of um, artists and scientists, um, that is what they are doing. It is not to be sniffed at. Exploratory creativity is not to be sniffed at. Not only because, um, almost by definition, the structures that people come up with are going to be valuable, because the style is one that's already valued by the culture. I already said that. So if you find that style valuable, then you will probably, you know, you will find these new structures valuable. And some of them will be um, surprising, not just in the sense that they're new. You know, you've never seen that particular picture before. Um, but they may be also surprising in the sense that it wouldn't have, you wouldn't have realised until now that that style could actually give you that structure might be a surprising move in chess. Or, um, well, think of your own e examples. Anyway, that's exploratory creativity and um, a great deal of what famous artists and scientists do, a very great deal of it, is exploratory creativity. And transformational creativity um, gives you a sort of impossibilist surprise. In transformational creativity, it's parasitic on or it's a development, if you like, of exploratory creativity, where what you do is you actually change one or more of the rules of the style. You may drop one. You may take the negative of one. Um, there are all sorts of different things you can do. Um, but you change the style so that you come up with structures which literally could not have been generated before. The old rules of the style wouldn't have done it, and that's why they seem impossible. And that's why you get this sort of impossibilist surprise. Um, but they are coming out of the old style. That's why they're intelligible, even if they're very difficult to understand at first, and sometimes they are. Um, but they are related to the original style. And in order to understand them, you have to sort of be able to see those commonalities. And most artists and scientists never come up with a transformational idea in that sense. And most who do only come up with it once. It's very rare individuals. Uh, Picasso is one, Crick is another one, Turing is another one, who came up with more than one fundamentally transformational idea. But notice what happens when they come up with it, even if they're Picasso or Turing, who, as I said, came up with more than one um, through their career, what they do then is switch to exploration. 
they switch into exploratory creativity to find out, you know, just what can be done, if you like, what are the limits, what's the potential of this new idea, and so on, and push it as hard as they can. Um, anyway, so those are the three sorts of, of creativity. And the question is, what can neuroscience tell us about them? And in a nutshell, what I would say is that certainly at the moment, neuroscience can tell us nothing whatsoever of any interest about exploratory or transformational creativity. Combinational creativity is a bit different. Um, because combinational creativity is about associations, mental associations, basically. And the notion that there are mental associations has been around for literally hundreds of years, whenever since David Hartley. And, um, and Livingston Lowe's in that wonderful book that I told you about was taking that for granted as being a way in which memory worked, that it was working by associations. But of course, he, didn't, he had no idea about just how it might work. Well, now neuroscience and computational neuroscience, working neural networks, can give us some ideas to think about this, some specific ideas. I mean, already in the 1980s, it was known that certain, sort, certain drugs um, tend to make people... Um, make much broader associations, much broader conceptual associations. And therefore, some associations um, which are more surprising than they would normally be. I mean, it wasn't known you know, how that worked, but it was known that certain drugs had that effect um, on the nervous system. And um, now, of course, we know it's not the 1980s anymore, and neuroscientists can tell us very much more about you know, just how... Um, mental associations like that work. But what they're telling us, actually, is at a very low... Well, I don't mean to denigrate it when I say it's at a low level. It's about the chemistry, the electrical conductances, and so on and so on. Um, up to a point, it's about the connectivities. Um, it isn't about the concepts. They can't tell you, you know... Um, anything interesting at all about, in the way that Livingston Lowe's can at an intuitive level, about why that particular image in the ancient mariner came from this passage in the um, transactions of the uh, Royal Society combined with this passage in some ancient mariner's tales. Right? Um, but the neuroscientists can tell you uh, increasingly more about the mechanics of it, and thanks to work in artificial intelligence and neural networks, we've even got some really um, very interesting ideas about how an associative memory works, and, um, and those ideas up to a point can um, be applied in um, thinking about how the brain works. The problem there, of course, is that although these ideas are very exciting and, of course, very clear, uh, because if they weren't clear, the computer couldn't take them and run with them, um, they're very simple compared with what the brain actually is. I mean, the basic units that are used in a neural network that used, that's used in AI or that's used in your, if you have a stockbroker, that's used in your stockbroker's office to work out what shares to sell and to buy and so on. I mean, these things are all around us. Um, the basic units are very, very much simpler in many ways, we needn't go into, very much simpler than an individual uh, neuron is in the brain, okay? So we're still just skirting the surface there. But there are some good ideas, and certainly I think if you read the um, Livingston Lowe's book, um, not looking at it just from the point of view of a, a literary critic and using your intuition, um, but with those ideas in mind, it makes even more sense than it does when you read it without those ideas in mind. Um, but even here... Um, there's a big problem, which is relevance. I mean, in principle, any concept could be linked with any other. In principle. Um, that's why, for example, there are so many different answers to the Mad Hatter's riddle that he gave to Alice, what's the difference between a raven and a writing desk. I mean, many, many different, which he didn't answer. Many, many answers have been given. Many more answers could be given. 
Um, because if you've got um, a whole host of concepts in your head, right, represented in your brain, of course, and if you've got associative networks which are so rich um, that the messages can pass in almost any direction, in principle, right? Well, in principle, as I say, um, you could connect one idea with any other. But life, A, life is too short. And B, um, if it's too uh, far, if the linkage is too far, it won't be understood as relevant by you or by the person that you're, you're trying to communicate with. Um, and now relevance is not a notion in neuroscience. They just never think about that notion. Um, it isn't a notion, I would say, either, really, um, at least not under that name, in artificial intelligence. Although if you know what the frame problem is, that's a special case of it, but if you don't know what it is, never mind. Um, the point is that the associations we make in combinational creativity are valued by us largely because we find them relevant. And there's a very interesting book, again, by Sperber and Wilson called Relevance, which is looking at relevance in a... Um, in a computational way, or the word they would use is not computational, the word they would use is information processing, but it's the same idea. They're asking, you know, can we get a grip on this notion of relevance, which they're interested in because they're interested in the nature of, commun of communication and how it's possible when I come out with words in English for you to understand what I'm saying, how, and, and quickly too, normally, immediately. Sometimes you have to tussle. And if you're reading James Joyce, well, then you really have to tussle, and maybe you never get there, but you certainly have to tussle. But normally, it's immediate. And um, to cut a very long and very interesting story short, there's another book I'd recommend to you, um, what they say is um, we have evolved, and we've had to uh, evolve, um, methods of information processing which make our information processing um, on the one hand, as using up as less effort as possible, but on the other hand, being as useful as possible. And relevance, they define, in terms of these two things together. So to take a very simple example, um, even a newborn baby um, will... orientate to movement. We have special movement detectors in our eyes and uh, visual cortex and so on, which are very, very sensitive, far more sensitive uh, on the whole than other visual cells. Why? Because movement in general is likely to be relevant to us. And it's not just us, but other animals too. We're very, very sensitive to movement, and we've evolved to be that way. It has very, very high relevance. And there we have, you know, specific types of cell and circuits that are built in for it. Similarly, a newborn baby will uh, be more attentive to human speech sounds than to other sounds. And for that matter, will be more attentive to human speech sounds and certainly intonations of the language that was being spoken around him or her while he or she was in the womb. Um, and again, uh, that's something which um, is evolved. Now, of course, we haven't evolved to put together this particular idea with that particular idea as Coleridge did. But, Sperber and Wilson say, we have evolved certain sorts of memory structures, including hierarchical schemas of, of concepts and scripts, in other words, um, sequences of events which we uh, regard as, as which, which we use to structure our narratives and so on and, and so forth. So what I'm saying is even in the case of relevance there is something that can be said I think of interest about th by thinking about it in information processing terms. Now there is no computer model uh, as far as I know of Sperber and Wilson's ideas because it's just too difficult, too complicated. 
But to think about the mind computationally is not necessarily to build a computer model. It's to use ideas about information processing and ideas preferably having the sort of clarity and rigor which computational ideas do um, to think about what's going on in the mind. And it's at that level that they are trying to talk about relevance. But um, they haven't really, uh, they certainly haven't sussed it out in computational terms. But my point here is that if neuroscience ever wants to get a handle on relevance, it's going to have to be able to do that first. And in fact, that takes me on to the next two types of creativity, where if you want, I, if you want to understand exploratory creativity, I said, well, you have to be able, you have to think about styles of thinking. You have to be able to identify them. And that some people, I said, spend their whole lives trying to identify them. And when you've done that, if you've done that, then you have to be able to express it clearly enough to think about uh, you know, what sorts of structures really do fit, really would fit, really could come out of that style, and what couldn't, and so on. And you also have to ask yourself questions about what sorts of processes or computations are involved in negotiating this style, in exploring it, in um, building new structures. Uh, and actually, um, these things on the one hand are surprisingly difficult, but on the other hand, occasionally you get surprising successes in, in giving the answers. Now, I've just got time to give you just one example. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright, okay, very, very famous architect, and one of the um, things that Frank Lloyd Wright is famous for is his so-called prairie houses. The prairie houses, um, I think there are about 42 of them, and they're all different because they're all built for individual clients and each one is different, but they all share you know, a certain style. They're, you can... If you understand the stuff, if you're familiar with the stuff, you can see, oh, yes, that's a prairie house. Oh, that one isn't, that's something else. But that's, that's a prairie house. Now, a historian of architecture, whose name, unfortunately, I can't remember, but it doesn't really matter because I don't want to recommend his book to you, and I'll tell you why in a minute. A historian uh, of architecture, who is apparently a world specialist in Frank Lloyd Wright, okay, wrote a whole volume about Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture, trying to say, you know, what it was, what was going on. And a whole chapter was about the Prairie House. And he said a lot of things about, you know, the structure of the Prairie House, and he gave you plan and elevation and lots and lots of prose. But he said, after all this had been done, he said, the prin their principle of unity, in other words, their style, surely, their principle of unity is occult. By which he did not mean, I haven't thought hard enough about it. He meant, it's a cult. It's a mystery. It's not something which science <laughs> would touch. Well, uh, maybe 30, 40 years, I forget the date, 30, certainly 30 years ago now, um, some uh, uh, people working in AI and around AI actually wrote what they, it wasn't a computer program, it was a, but it was a, what they called a shape grammar. It was a set of rules which um, you know, could have been put into a computer program and they may have been done, done since then, but because it was largely graphics, it was difficult to actually do. But it was a set of rules um, about putting shapes together and building up, um, building a, a, a building which was going to look like a prairie house. And um, again, just to put it very, very briefly, they, using this grammar, they came up with every single one of those 42 houses was recognisably the same. I mean, they weren't aiming at that. They were just running the grammar, you know, churn, turning the handle. But every single one of those 42 houses came up. What's more, some other houses came up, every single one of which, when looked at by a specialist in, in prairie houses, was recognisably a prairie house. And one of these was actually built for Frank's, it's called the Steiny House, for Frank Steiny, who was one of the people I'm talking about. He had the house built. It looks as though it's designed by uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. Actually, it was designed by this programme. And even more interestingly, perhaps, it never came up with a plan 
which did not look like a prairie house. Okay. So it seems to me that from that example, the uh, style of the prairie house, the principle of unity, is not occult, and these people have sussed it. And they found out some interesting things. For example, they found out that um, the placing of the fireplace has to be done very early, and it makes a big difference. And if you decide to have two fireplaces rather than one, then it makes an even bigger difference. And the, the result that you get, if you have two or more, two fireplaces rather than one, you get, a, um, in the end, a structure which in some sense is sort of two prairie houses somehow in one. In other words, they made distinctions between fundamental constraints and more superficial constraints of this architectural space, showed how they needed to be ordered to get something which was recognisably a prairie house, showed how certain sorts of changes would result in certain sorts of differences, and also implicitly showed how certain things are impossible and why in that style. Okay? Um, now, if, a neuro, if you asked a neuroscientist you know, to explain how it's possible for Frank Lloyd Wright or anybody else to come up with um, a new design for Prairie House, he wouldn't be able to do it without, first of all, having this very clear idea of what the principle of unity is. Which, A, on the one hand, I mean, they don't even ask those questions. And in most cases, we don't have them anyway, because, as I said, identifying um, these styles is sometimes very, very difficult. I mean, this architectural historian couldn't do it. And as I said, people spend their whole lives trying to do it um, and don't always manage it. So it's very, very difficult. The neuroscientist is not working at that level, is not interested at that level. What's worse is he doesn't, they don't realise that they should be, well, that's not fair. I was going to say they don't realise that they should be working at that level. That's not fair. Because even if we had that sort of computational information processing level, if even if we had the answers there at this point in time, neuroscience isn't sufficiently advanced that they could use it. And one very good reason is, or a very bad reason, whichever way you want to look at it, um, we don't understand how a connectionist system such as the brain could model hierarchy. And many, 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 many of these styles, in, in most, probably, involve hierarchy. I mean, give, remember my example about the fireplace? <coughs> yeah. um, we don't know. People have tried very, very hard uh, to model hierarchy with um, connectionist systems. They haven't managed it yet. The, um, probably the best example is um, harmony theory, Paul Smolensky's harmony theory which does actually build on some neuroscientific work. But um, it's very specialised to syntax. It isn't at all clear that it can be generalised to any other hierarchy. So if you can't manage hierarchy um, in connectionism, you can't understand how the brain does it. It looks as though what the brain is actually doing, and this has been said many times for, in other contexts, um, it's for some of the things that it does, like, for instance, logic, it's emulating a von Neumann machine. The brain, which is basically a connectionist um, system, is emulating a von Neumann machine, which is able to cope with hierarchy and so on, and is able to cope with um, rules and exceptions and uh, so forth, which in some areas of creativity um, are very, very strict. But we haven't got the beginnings of a good idea about how that's done at the neuroscientific level. Um, and similarly, in the case of transformational creativity, which I said was a development of, explore, of exploratory creativity, if we can't say anything of any interest about exploratory creativity in neuroscientific terms, because even when we do have an identification and description of the space, we don't know how the brain does it. I mean, at best, we might know, and usually we don't even know this, at best we might know that, you know, it's that part of the brain rather than that brain that's doing it. Well, so what? What, just what is being done? And just how is it being done? 
And I don't mean by that which cells are doing it, but even if you knew which cells are doing it, what is it that they are doing? There's a lovely quote from um, a man called John Mayhew, who was at, um, worked on the psychology of vision and computer modelling of vision, in particular depth vision stereopsis. Anyway, and he said in one of his papers, um, it's not very interesting to know that there's a cell that recognises your grandmother. After all, we all know that we can recognise our grandmother. What's interesting is how the cell, or anything at all, by which he meant a, a computer, what's interesting is how the cell, or anything at all, can recognise your grandmother, how it does it. What is the information processing that's going on? What are the computations that's going on? And those are the questions which you have to ask if you're concerned about psychological issues. It isn't enough just to find correlations with things buzzing in the brain when somebody has, an, has a thought of a certain kind. But that is, does not give you an explanation. Um, at best, it gives you a tiny little bit of scientifically unmotivated natural history, which possibly in 500 years' time might turn out to be useful, as all the natural history that uh, Darwin inherited, and some of it, of course, he done himself, but he inherited a lot too, um, as that became hugely interesting once he could put it in, in terms of his theory, put, place it in his theory, which was science, then it turned, if you like, from pure natural history and necessary natural history, because without it you wouldn't have had Darwin's theory, into something that could be explained by a scientific theory, in this case, theory of evolution and so on. Um, and I would say that the vast majority of brain imaging work which is going on now, and about which some people are getting so excited and talking, I would say, some utter nonsense in many, many cases, is at best unmotiv scientifically unmotivated natural history, giving us a whole sort of rag bag of facts um, which don't explain anything. At best, they give us correlations. Um, and which will need to be taken on board if and when we ever do have a neuroscientific theory of higher mental processes in general and creativity in particular, um, which can explain what the information processing is that's going on and, and how it's done by the brain. And having said that very critical thing about most uh, of this work, I must say there are exceptions. And one of the very, very best exceptions is a man called Chris Frith. Now, Chris Frith is a very famous um, neuroscientist who um, specialises in this sort of uh, work. But Chris always starts with a theoretically motivated question. And what's more, he starts with a psychological question. For example, uh, in... in just, just one example of his work, which he did with his wife, Otto Fritz, who is a specialist on, on autism, a pioneer on autism. Um, there's a theory of autism, which is largely due to um, Uta and her colleagues, um, which is that um, autistic children can't connect with, uh, can't communicate properly or emotionally connect with... Um, other people, in many cases, don't even have eye contact, unless they're specially trained, they won't even have eye contact with their mother. Um, because they don't have in their brains the mechanisms that we've inherited, that we've involved, um, to deal with other people. So-called theory of mind, or if intentional concepts, psychological concepts, notions like aim, intention, belief, knowledge. Um, the notion which very young, normal, normal non-autistic children don't have either. I mean, it comes, but um, I mean, by the time a child is eight, certainly eight, and in some cases, you know, a couple of years before that, by that time, a child is perfectly well aware that each of us is an agent 
I have my beliefs, I have my perceptions, I have my desires, my wishes, and so on and so on. You have yours, he has his. And therefore it's possible for me to lie to him and for him to lie to me. And all sorts of things, some of them really nasty things, become possible. It's possible for me to be considerate about him. It's possible now, which wasn't earlier, for him to be considerate about me because he knows that I have these intentions, which may not be the same as his, and so on and so on. All this stuff becomes possible. Anyway, there's a lot of evidence, including some neuroscientific evidence, um, that um, the ability to come up with these concepts, which, as I say, happens about, you know, between years three and six, that sort of age, um, is, is uh, evolved in us and is in a particular area of the brain. And so there is some other very good evidence, um, which Chris Frith was um, partly involved in, in, in discovering, that the, these intentional concepts appear, this is done by brain imaging experiments, appear to be um, represented in a particular area of uh, frontal cortex. I forget exactly what it is, it doesn't matter. Particular area. And they do that with you know, the, the normal brain imaging experiments. They ask them to ask someone to think about uh, something with using an intentional verb and do these cells buzz or do those cells buzz? Or they ask them to think about something non-intentional and these cells don't buzz and so forth. So that's the sort of evidence that's going there. And um, so what Chris Frith did was to do brain imaging studies on normal people and on autistics to see whether or not um, that part of the brain uh, didn't buzz when they were thinking or asked to think about intentional concepts, and indeed it didn't. In other words, he was giving neuroscientific support to the psychological theory of autism, which suggests that that specific sort of information processing is not going on. Now, that's a beautiful piece of work. It's also, I think, I mean, it's important in... It's a beautiful piece of work, and it's very much an exception. But if we are ever going to understand creativity or any other, any other higher mental process um, at the neuroscientific level, they need to start out by asking those sorts of questions. Um, and they certainly aren't doing that yet, and um, don't hold your breath. Sorry to end on what seems like a negative note, but I think you have to be honest. <laughs> Especially when there's so much hype around the place.